coming up on Art Palace. Four of the songs from the Dear Companion record have been used in like in major primetime TV shows. And they're all talking about mountaintop removal and they're all talking about a poisoned environment, but they're in, you know, they're they're in like the feel-good comedy of the year or whatever. to Art Palace, produced by Cincinnati Art Museum. This is your host, Russell Eyrig. Here at the Art Palace, we meet cool people and then talk to them about art. Today's cool people are Guy Mendez and Daniel Martin Moore. Guy Mendez is a photographer whose work is featured in the exhibition Kentucky Renaissance, the Lexington Camera Club and its community, 1954 to 1974. And Daniel Martin Moore is a recording artist from Kentucky who has released albums on Sub Pop Records and also founded his own label, Old Kentuck Recordings. Both Guy and Daniel are passionate about environmental issues that affect Kentucky, and these causes have impacted both of their artistic outputs. This interview was part of our In Conversation series and was recorded live on November 17th, 2016. Our curatorial assistant of photography, Emily Bauman, moderated this conversation. I'll apologize again that we had some scratchy mics this evening, but they clear up a lot after the first minute. So, as we get started, I was thinking about the roles of collaboration and community that have been so central in Kentucky Renaissance, which of course is the exhibition on view upstairs of photographs by Lexington Camera Club members. As we get our conversation going, maybe you could tell us a little bit about how the two of you came to know each other. Uh, I met Daniel in 2010 uh, when I set out to make some pictures of him and Ben Soli for the Dear Companion album. And um, I had been in that ballroom uh, for a, a late night party 30 something years ago and remembered it. And I knew it was always empty, in part because it's three flights up, three long flights of stairs up and no elevator. And uh, most of the building is rent, rental apartments in a restaurant on Main, Main Street. But um, I thought of that uh, ballroom and um, it was great except for shooting toward big windows and trying to figure that out. But, but it was the first time I met Daniel and I had known Ben for a while uh, through Philip March Jones uh, in Lexington uh, who runs Institute 193. And um, I soon learned that Daniel had a degree in photography yeah. from NKU, right? Yeah, I studied with uh, Barry Anderson and Barbara Houghton and Matthew Albritton, who is still there. Um, and I, looking at that picture, I, I wish I had sent you some of the pictures that I took of you that day. Oh, that's it, right. There's a really beautiful image that I wish I could share with you. Maybe if y'all are on Twitter or something, I'll tweet it later if you want. But um, it's a picture of Guy uh, setting up the 4x5, or, or framing a shot with the 4x5, and Ben sitting out in the middle of the room. It's really, I love it. It's you, a, yes, uh, you see my legs and a black cloth and a <laughs> tripod, and that's about it. I look great. Uh, <laughs> uh, so that's how I met Daniel. Was, uh, it was basically a commissioned job to uh, help him with this album. And, but 
having learned about strip mining uh, 45, 50 years ago, uh, the early forms of strip mining were much, uh, were, were disastrous, but they were more, uh, not as disastrous as mountaintop removal were. Uh, in the old days, they just, they learned they could take highway equipment and just start cutting benches out of mountainsides and then pushing the spoil down in the creek and then augering or, you know, uh, drilling out the, the coal in the seams. Uh, and then years later, they realized they could just take the whole mountain down. And uh, that's when Appalachian Voices and other groups were rallying people against the practice. And unfortunately, it still goes on. Uh, the, you know, no matter what Democratic or Republican administrations have been in, uh, coal has been the king. And um, so I was eager to work on the with them because I knew that here was a new, a new crowd, new set of people working against something I'd worked against a long time ago. Uh, Daniel, you've said that raising awareness of mountaintop removal is really the mission that you set for Dear Companion. Right. And I have to admit, before I did research for tonight's conversation, it wasn't something that I am familiar with. And I wondered if you could tell our members of the audience who also might not be familiar. Right what it is and what its effects are on the environment and on the communities. Well, it's, it's just as Guy said. It's, um, I mean, it, it's, it's called mountaintop removal um, because that's what they do. You know, they remove the mountaintops. And, so, and it's not just the, like a thin layer at the top of the mountain. Sometimes it's hundreds and hundreds of feet. And by a mountain, a, a mountain in Appalachia isn't like a mountain in the Rockies where there's a defined peak. Like Pine Mountain, for example, is 125 miles long. It's a ridge. And so a mountaintop removal site could be several square miles. And it could be 300 feet of that ridge that has been detonated, pushed around, down into the valleys. Um, and you can imagine how disruptive that is to an ecosystem. But it's not just wildlife and wilderness out there. There are also hundreds and hundreds and, and thousands of people who live all through the region and whose homes are shaken off their foundations. In the watersheds. Oh, in the watersheds. I mean, we right now, this is water from the watershed. Uh, you know, there is mountaintop removal, hopefully. Um, the pollutants have been filtered out of this. But the Ohio River is part of the watershed that is. The Big Sandy, uh, yeah. Kentucky. Uh, uh, so you know. Millions of people live downstream from this practice. Mm -hmm. And to date, is it 500 plus mountains have been at least detonated? Mm -hmm. um, More South, in West Virginia yeah. you know, than Kentucky, but still a lot in Kentucky. Uh, it's an extraordinarily destructive thing. And the reason that you've never heard of it is because it's very intentionally hidden. Um, because when people find out about it and when they see it, and they see, when you see pictures of it, you're like, that can't, that can't be real. And we, if you ever are uh, able to actually set foot on one of these sites, you become a crusader against the practice almost instantly. Because it's so clearly wrong, like, some people feel opposition to it from like a religious sense, you know, like 
we're supposed to be taking care of the earth, we're supposed to be stewards of the earth. Love your mother. Yeah, but it's, you look out over three or four square miles of just utter obliteration, the forest is gone and it's a moonscape, but it's... And it ain't coming back. Yeah. Uh, you know, can't put that back. It's hidden because when you find out about it, you start raising your voice to stop it. And it's, it's phenomenal. It, it, it still surprises me that it, that it isn't more seen. But it's always a ridge away from the interstate. So you can't see it from the roads. Um, and yeah, it's, 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 it's astonishing. It really is. And the uh, chemicals that end up in the water are affecting uh, uh, people's health, children and adults uh, all down in the watershed. And there have been new studies in the last number of years uh, to prove that. Uh, so it's not just, oh, it's, it's what, uh, you know, there was just a bunch of snakes up there. I've heard one, you know, coal miner tell me, there's just a bunch of snakes and a bunch of old scrub trees. And uh, no, it was a mixed mesophytic forest. It was some of the most, it's one of the most diverse forests in the world. And yet, Harry Cottle, who wrote the, uh, Bellwether book, uh, Mount, uh, Night Comes to the Cumberlands, back in the 60s, was a state senator and a, a wonderful orator, uh, and he fought strip mining for a long time. Um, he used to say that Eastern Kentucky could have been like Switzerland, but it was bought up by energy companies uh, back in the early uh, 20th century, and um, you know, for, for pennies, they bought mineral rights separate from the surface rights. And not until the, I think it was in the 80s, we finally got a law that banned the broad form deed that allowed anyone who had a mineral right to your property could tear the hell out of the surface to get to those minerals. And, uh, you know, this whole phony war on coal of the last number of years, uh, politicians have railed against. Uh, it, it's, uh, that's fictitious, you know, really the war, coal is down because Natural gas is up, and fracking has become, you know, Pennsylvania and Oklahoma and places are experiencing terrible uh, environmental difficulties from fracking, but we're benefiting from uh, cheaper natural gas. Uh, one new problem in Kentucky is they want to run pipelines through uh, with fracking waste, so they can send them down to Texas to refine them into other things and make more money on the waste that they've created in Pennsylvania and other places. And, uh, communities have risen up and fought those pipelines. And one of them was coming through a farm that my wife and her two brothers own near Frankfort, Kentucky, and uh, they went to meetings and fought it. And um, then the Sisters of Loretto, uh, a, uh, a group of uh, Catholic nuns down near the Gethsemane Abbey in Nelson County, Kentucky, near Bardstown, it was to come across their property. And when the Sisters of Loretto got out and started protesting, I think the pipeline company knew they had to go elsewhere, but uh, you don't mess with nuns, you know. Um, but anyway, um, it, I think the problem still exists because coal companies still own these minerals and they still want to get out all they can. And it's cheaper just to blast the hell out of it uh, than to employ, you know, there are fewer miners employed because they're bigger machines and, uh, you know, it's not a guy in a pickaxe anymore. Yeah. So.
Daniel, in interviews, you've said that Kentucky has always been rich and fertile ground for music and art. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about how you see the protection and the celebration of the rich cultural heritage in the Appalachian Mountain region as connected to this issue of mountaintop removal. Hmm. Yeah, I, I think that um, as As the people in the region left to find other economic opportunities, the culture also started to disperse. And I think that was in some ways a good thing because it sort of spread country music, what is, you know, quote unquote country music all over the place. Um, but I think that if we, I think that if we were to make real investments in the communities and real infrastructure investments that the musical culture would flourish as well. And not just the music, but all, all of the arts. I mean, there are amazing photographers, obviously, from Kentucky, and actors. Some of the most famous actors in the world are from Kentucky. Um, and and George I, Clooney? George Clooney, Johnny Depp. Um, he's from Paducah. Did y'all know that? Mm -hmm. Willie Tomlin's from P Paducah. Yeah. I mean, but it's just, I, you know, it, even. For me, it really is a human rights. Like, I, I love the land, and this photograph behind us is a great example of, um, would, you, you, would you say that's an intermittent stream? Um, or is that a, is it a? It's a protected area in Lily's Woods okay. in, in Letcher County. An old man named Lily Cornett uh, had Harry Cottle, uh, his lawyer, protect uh, the property in perpetuity, and uh, there are strip mines and mountaintop removals around it, yeah. but it's uh, an old-growth forest that has been protected. And Guy, do I remember correctly, is this the photograph that's on the inside of Deer Companion? Uh, yeah, yes. it's in the gatefold. When you open the record, it goes from side to side. It's so beautiful. It's so beautiful. Um, and I do, I think everyone who is opposed to mountaintop removal loves the forests and loves um, the wildlife and because you know eastern Kentucky is is as beautiful as I mean I've seen rainforests on two continents and and hiking up Bad Branch Falls is just as beautiful as anything I've ever seen you know I mean it's such an extraordinary place but on top of that I think the opposition to mountaintop removal for me is most deeply rooted in um, in in equity and justice for, for people, for Kentuckians, for citizens. It's like, this is a human rights issue. These people are being poisoned and terrorized. And that's not hyperbole. They're actually being poisoned and actually and if, and if being they resist, terrorized. Uh, their, their newspaper is burned down, like the Mountain Eagle was in yeah. uh, 1974. Uh, Tom and Pat Gish's uh, the Mountain Eagle. And because they fought against strip mining and uh, the, uh, the Mountain Eagle logo used to say it screams, and after the fire, when they came back, it, it said it still screams. And, uh, <laughs> but, you know, I think uh, the community that's rallied against it includes locals, which, you know, of course, you'd need uh, local people who are being most affected, but also writers and artists uh, from other parts, uh, you know, of the state and other, and other states uh, who 
join together to produce. Uh, there have been these flyover events where they gather some artists and writers and fly you over. You've been on those, yeah. right? Um, I was supposed to go on one, but I had a knee operation instead. But uh, I saw some of the pictures. And, and as a photographer, I'm not real big on pictures of destruction and uh, ugliness, but uh, I understand the need for uh, repertorial pictures that show show what's ha you know the abomination of uh, the the scope of the destruction. Um, but I think a, 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 so a community of like-minded people gathered and uh, produced some books and uh, people like Eric Reese, who read here recently, uh, had a book called Lost Mountain that was serialized in Harper's, I think. Um, so it's been a terrible, um, terrible for the whole region. And, uh, you know, it, now that Cole is uh, not king anymore, uh, things are really bad for the folks down there in terms of employment and, uh, and cleaning up the environment. There's a huge fund of money, of unspent money from reclamation fees that the coal companies paid and people are trying to pry some of that money out of Washington to give it back to the people that are most affected in the region. So. I think it's really interesting with projects that I've seen that both of you have worked on, you have a really positive sort of picture. Guy, you're showing us these beautiful sun-dappled valleys and Dear Companion, for example, even though <coughs> one might think of it as a sort of protest album. It's, it's not, it's more of a, a love letter or... Yeah, a prayer. Yeah. Sometimes it's just a prayer. But, you know, prayer is good. Daniel, you've worked with fellow writers, singers, musicians, and producers to raise awareness about mountaintop removal. Could you talk a little bit about how that kind of collaboration develops, about how about how that affects the creative process and sort of the back and forth between that and your goal to protect the environment? Sure. Um, I think well, Ben and I were first connected over, um, that's how we, we met, because I, I posted a song that I wrote called Fly Rock Blues on MySpace. Well, Fly Rock Blues got me down Got me down, got me down, got me way down. People pray, don't you land on me, don't you bust my house, just let me be on my own ground. Somebody, I don't know, one of his friends heard it and sent it to him and was like, hey man, we were just talking about this exact thing. And um, so Ben wrote to me and I was going to be in Lexington, just happened to be coming to Lexington a few days later. So we met and had a coffee and we're just talking about um, a lot of the, the things that we had read and the things that we had seen and um, Eric Reese's Lost Mountain. Was Eric here talking about uh, Utopian Drive? Mm -hmm. His new book. Yeah. I love that guy. I just want to say that he's wonderful. If you if you know, uh, if you might not know Eric Reese, the author, um, explain what fly rock is. Oh, so fly rock is um, a term that is used on um, these mine sites for 
um, un, what, what would you say, unanticipated projectiles? Boulders. Yeah, boulders. <laughs> and here's the thing, I mean, these explosions are enormous in scale. Um, a small one would bring this entire building down. Um, they're, it, they're huge, they're huge explosions. And sometimes, even though the engineers are incredibly intelligent and thorough, um, they don't quite get everything just right. And giant boulders the size of this room, some of the bigger ones, and sometimes they're smaller, but they might go tumbling down the mountain in a way that wasn't anticipated. And um, there are several stories from the last 40, 50 years of these boulders killing people, crushing houses. Um, a family was killed in 1970, what year was that? I'm not sure. Jay? 1976. Um, a little boy was killed in 2005 in his sleep. A boulder crushed his whole room, basically. It came coming through the wall and killed him in his bed. And they've landed on cars. And, um, and that is an image that, I, don't, I mean, I just can't couldn't get it out of my head. And um, anyway, I wrote that song about um, just the whole, the whole situation, really. Um, and that was one that was completely done when I met Ben. But then we, you know, we just, we really hit it off personally. Like, he's one of my best friends now. Um, but we started writing and writing more songs individually and a few together. Um, and I think your question was about collaboration and how, you know, what are the factors that make it work or don't work in this context. And I think a lot of artists, like just like a lot of people, you know, you just think, what can you do? You know, when you see something that maybe feels like an injustice or, or something that's wrong and you want to help, you want to be a positive force, you want to be constructive. And I think, you know, Two musicians were like, "Well, let's let's make some, let's make a record, and let's go on tour." And and we also struggle so much. I think most uh, artists, and especially like performing artists, struggle with like what is too much because nobody coming to a show wants to get preached at. You know what I mean? It, it's like, I mean, how quickly do we roll our eyes when Bono starts talking about starving, this and that? You know, on in a stadium full of 50,000 people at $150 a ticket or whatever, you're just like, okay. So I mean, you, so I feel like there's a lot of camaraderie that we all feel just being like, what can we do that's not ridiculous? That's not like somehow inappropriate. That's, um, that's not blowing up giant dozers. <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. It's a different way to go. <laughs> yeah, it's another option. Um, but yeah, I think, I think a lot of artists like, end up just making records and, and, you know, trying to hopefully, like when we made Dear Companion, we tried, we wanted to make a record that could stand on its own and that you could hear on the radio or something and not, not that you wouldn't know that it was about mountaintop removal, but that it wouldn't be a stumbling block. You know, it's, it's not like a, a protest record and that it isn't 
there's nothing fun about it or beautiful about it. It's just somebody going like, this is wrong, we have to stop, you know. Those are terrible records, it's awful, you know. The, so we tried to write songs that we thought were good and cool and beautiful, but that also talked about these issues. Um, and in a way to sort of like sneak it in um, under the gatekeepers who would normally keep like political stuff off the air or off of television. You know, we really like, we had several conversations about um, creating things that would be possibly of interest to people like music supervisors at TV shows. Um, and four of the songs from the Dear Companion record have been used in, like, in major primetime TV shows. And they're all talking about mountaintop removal, and they're all talking about a poisoned environment, but they're in, you know, they're, they're in like the feel-good comedy of the year or whatever. And it's like, we're sort of trying to honestly like be subversive in that way. And, and that's the way that, that, that I see you all as traveling minstrels from the old days who tell the tale. Like they, right. they come to your town, they tell you things you haven't heard about. And, uh, they might do it in story or song form, um, but you know, it's Woody Guthrie. It's uh, people uh, out there traveling uh, and, and not preaching, but like you say, but getting the word out. And uh, I admire you all for doing that. Thanks, man. Guy, you wrote, produced, and directed documentary television for KET for over 30 years. Before that, you were a founding member of the Blue Tail Fly. Um, can you talk a little bit about projects that have been really memorable for you in terms of activism? Well, um, <clears throat> I guess my original um, experience with environmental activism involved the Red River Gorge. And uh, in the mid-60s, the Corps of Engineers, U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, pushed by a very influential Eastern Kentucky politician, uh, wanted to make a lake out of this beautiful Paleolithic area uh, and make it into a place for motorboats and, you know, uh, water skiing and so forth. Um, and locals were outraged about it. Uh, Sierra Club fought it. Um, but not until Justice William O. Douglas, who was in his 70s or 80s even, came and hiked in the Red River Gorge in 1967, did the tide turn, and a governor and a senator, Senator John Sherman Cooper, uh, quietly fought against, against it behind the back of this other representative, a congressman. And, um, and the gorge was saved, uh, but it took a while. And you know, all protest movements take a while to affect change. And, uh, the lesson there was that it, it might have been several years in, you know, protests and legal wrangling, and uh, but eventually it was stopped. And now it's an incredibly popular place for uh, people from places like Ohio to come and hike or climb. It's a great climbing mecca now, which it wasn't back then because rock climbing wasn't big back then in, in the '60s. But now it's uh, people come from all around the world there. And a ranger a few years back told me that they had a real problem in the Red River Gorge with UFOs. And I said, UFOs, really? And he said, unidentified falling Ohioans. <laughs> you know, the kids get drunk, they roll off the ridge and, you know, in the middle of the night. And it happens every year. And, yeah. uh, 
But so it's, it's been preserved, and when you go there, you feel the, mag, uh, the enormity of nature and your smallness in it. And when I took my kids there, they were in total awe uh, of, like, what is this place? Well, it's a place that was carved out over millions of years by water and their beautiful arches. And all oh, this was going to be underwater, of course. But, uh, so that, that was one battle. And then um, there, was the Viet, you know, there was the civil rights movement that was uh, kind of bef just before my time in college, but it was still happening. Um, and the first activist on the UK campus were the black student union members, which uh, I got to be friends with, and suddenly I had black friends. I grew up in segregated New Orleans. You know, it was uh, uh, very much white water fountain, black colored water fountains, and that sort of thing through my upbringing. And we didn't have African-American history in high school or any knowledge of civil rights, but and suddenly I had black friends who were talking about Africa and. I was like, oh my God, I under now I'm starting to understand, you know, what's going on. But, um, so there was civil rights and then it kind of blended into the anti-war movement and then that begat the environmental movement and uh, the blue tail fly, we, uh, one thing that we were proud of is that uh, Wendell Berry gave a speech on the first Earth Day that was called Think Little, as opposed to Think Big. And it was a manifesto for environmental action and it talked about how we all had to look into our own lives, even to you know what our use of natural resources and our wastefulness and so forth. Uh, and it was later reproduced by, in the Whole Earth Catalog, but we published it first right after that first Earth Day was the spring of uh, 1970. Um, and uh, not only uh, you know environmental battles don't can. You, you can't just win them once. You have to keep winning them over and over because someone's going to come along and want to develop that undeveloped forest. Um, we can't stop fighting for the environment, because, <clears throat> especially now that uh, the commander-in-chief is, is a climate change denier, and, uh, which goes against 98% of the scientific you know, uh, research and uh, people who say that climate change is real, and that's why we're having these uh, global treaties that uh, may go by the wayside now. We don't know. But um, the environmental movement begat the anti-nuclear movement, and that was important around here because right upriver from Cincinnati at Moscow, uh, Indiana, there was a plant being built called the Zimmer plant, nuclear power, and right uh, just upriver from Louisville, in, uh, near Madison, Indiana, a plant was being built called Marble Hill. And protest groups grew up in both cities, Louisville and Cincinnati. The one in Louisville was called the Paddle Wheel Alliance, I think. And there was to be a big uh, sit-in or a crossing of the uh, fence to, onto the property where Marble Hill was, and we had we. We were trained in nonviolent methods, and then eight, 60 something of us got arrested, including Wendell Berry. And then we were released, you know, and nothing ever happened to us because all we really did was set foot on the property. But at Marble Hill, uh, someone smuggled out x rays of wells of this complicated nuclear uh, facility, and the wells were deficient. And that was one of the things that helped stop that plant. I forget exactly, uh, but the, the protest helped, but the Zimmer plant was also stopped. And this was all after Three Mile Island and Chernobyl, when you know 
uh, it was clear that nuclear power was not perfect and that not only was uh, there the danger of meltdown, but there was the problem of the 250,000 uh, shelf, year shelf life of the nuclear materials they were going to be, the waste that they were going to generate. Uh, so that was another ep, uh, a situation where you fought for years and didn't know what the outcome was going to be. And then finally there was, uh, we achieved the result we wanted, which was the cancellation of those plants after millions had been spent. Yeah. But, um, and so those are, uh, those were the kind of things that were happening in the 60s, 70s, 80s. Um, Guy, have you heard anything about the, uh, I just heard this little blip on the radio the other day and I uh, <clears throat> made a note to look it up but I haven't done it yet, but there's a, apparently a company known as GE Hitachi, which I don't know what that means, it's just like a joint venture between the two companies, but they've just gotten a permit, they've just been greenlit for some processing facility outside of Paducah that's going to um, turn uh, depleted uranium into usable uranium again? Have you read anything about I that? I haven't heard that, but you know, Paducah is where one of the, uh, the nuclear, there was a triangle uh, where nuclear material was traveling to Oak Ridge, Tennessee, Paducah, Kentucky, because it had a, a uranium enrichment plant yeah. there that was part of the nuclear bomb process. And there was a place, was it Portsmouth, Ohio? There, there, there was a kind of a triangle where, you know, uh, when you started to understand the danger of nuclear materials, and you realize, oh my God, we're in between, and this stuff's traveling on the highways and right. uh, train cars and whatnot. Um, so Paducah has had that atomic energy facility for a long time. Yeah. So I guess they're trying to uh, get some, you know, make some money off of the fact right. that uh, they, you know. Uh, they say it's not for military use. They say it's it's just for like a nuclear power plant to make your watches glow or what? I, I mean, guess I don't know. I don't know. Let okay. me swing us back around. Um, Guy, in 2013, there was an exhibition of your photographs of the Marble Creek Gorge at Ann Tower Gallery on Main Street in Lexington. And also that year, writers including Wendell Berry, Morris Manning, and Eric Reese, and also musical artists gave a benefit performance um, in opposition, to show opposition of the I-75 connector. Um, I'm interested in the way that people have been working together across different media to come together for that cause and also specifically in the photographs that you've taken because I don't want to leap too much but they do a little bit your photographs of the Marble Creek Gorge make me think of the photographs that Ralph Eugene Meatyard took yeah. for the unforeseen wilderness. Gene Meatyard and Wendell Berry did a book called The Unforeseen Wilderness. Uh, they spent long camping trips there over the course of a couple of years in the, in the Red River Gorge. And uh, Gene, some of those prints are in the show upstairs. And there, uh, there have been a couple of attempts to reproduce those prints in books. And only one of them, a North Point Press book, uh, came anywhere near the quality of the original prints. Something on the, the first edition was too dark, one edition was too gray. And, but those, those pictures were kind of like uh, the pictures made in the late 19th century that people brought back to Washington to show what we had out west, because we didn't know what we had out west, and oh, we need to make some national parks out there. I think Gene felt that his pictures would help save the gorge when people realized 
the wonder and the, the majesty of the place. And so years later, um, I had been, I started going to Marble Creek, which is uh, in Jesmond County, down near the Kentucky River, about 30 minutes south of Lexington. And I, my former sister-in-law has lived there since the mid-70s when I started going there. And uh, when I first started going to Marble Creek, it was really to jump naked in the creek, and, but I always had a camera with me. And, uh, and then I realized, you know, over the years, I started taking a view camera there and um, realizing, you know, that I had a place I could photograph for the rest of my life, basically. It's not that long a creek, but it's a gorge, and it uh, has some towering rocks, and uh, um, it feeds into the Kentucky River. Uh, but about 15 years ago, it was threatened by a connector, an I-75 connector, to get semi-trucks from Nicholasville, Kentucky, to I-75 faster than the, when they had to go through Lexington to get to I-75. And this four-lane highway would have come right down Marble Creek. And um, it was, the idea was beaten back about 15 years ago, and like a lot of environmental victories, uh, 10 years later, a few years ago, the plan resurfaced. <clears throat> and the new plan had four routes for the, the new road, which is going to cost millions and millions of dollars so that trucks can get faster to, their, to the interstate. And it goes across pristine bluegrass farmland. And one of the four routes was right down Marble Creek. So people, uh, local uh, residents were protesting and going to meetings and uh, go, you know, regaling the highway department that was behind this and the politicians that were behind it. And um, so we had, and I, so I looked back, suddenly looked back, and I've been photographing for 40 years in this Marble Creek Gorge, and I realized I could put a, a pretty good show together. And they're not, uh, you know, they're not protest pictures, but they're, like I said before, they're more like prayers or, or hymns. You know, I, the, things, the things I learned from the camera club and people like Gene Meatyard were that um, one of the things was that photographs have many different, there are many different kinds of photographs. Uh, there's, you know, pictures on your driver's license, there are repertorial pictures of, you know, the world as it is. Uh, and then there are pictures that take you other places. There are pictures that traffic in metaphor and mystery and, um, and you know, huh? Uh, and that's the, the first time I saw Gene Meteor's pictures. I'd never seen anything like them. And I just thought, well, this is something else. This is like poetry. And uh, I want to find out more about that. And I've, so for almost 50 years, I've been trying to find out more about it. But um, so the, <clears throat> the landscape pictures of Marble Creek, uh, to me, were a kind of bringing our artifacts back from a place that you know looks like it did probably millions of years ago. It's still pretty pristine. Uh, Daniel Boone and his family lived there a couple of years after they left Boonesboro, so it's got historic. You know, there's some uh, foundations that we think might have been Boone's. You know. Uh, cabin with his family. Uh, there are graveyards with just stone markers of freed slaves who settled and uh, uh, when slaves were freed some of the landowners gave them some of the land along Marble Creek. Uh, so it has that history too. And it's a great place of biological diversity and rare species. Uh, so, you know, I wanted, I put together a show and the pictures were like hymns, you know, to the the environment to 
make people understand that it's a, a precious entity, a, you know, a, a living, breathing wonderland. And um, the, then we had this kind of hootenanny thing. Barbara Kingsolver was another author uh, who was involved. She's from Kentucky, and her cousin lives along Marble Creek. And, uh, and so we raised some money for lawyers. Uh, we got about 500 people to come to this event and pay for it. And uh, that helped because they ended up taking the Marble Creek route off of their list of possible routes. And that was, yay, good. But there's still three possible routes to go across prime farmland. And uh, oh, an international group several years back uh, that rates uh, environmental uh, calamities and potential disasters said that the uh, bluegrass farmland was one of the uh, most threatened environments in the world because of the rapid race rate of development of suburbs and commercial developments into that bluegrass farmland, is, which is the reason we have the horse farms and the cattle farms and the, had the tobacco farms. And we will have the pot and hemp farms. Uh, we're already growing industrial hemp. and. Uh, Seven states now are uh, legalizing marijuana, and Kentucky used to be the leading hemp-producing state in the country, and uh, a lot grew wild in a lot of places. And uh, so, when I read about Colorado making millions of dollars, I think, and I hear about how Kentucky's cutting back its money for education, it's like, well, I know one of the answers for that. But, yeah. uh, but so the Marble Creek thing is ongoing, though Marble Creek has been spared, but other routes are still being considered. Um, and so there's still more meetings to go to and more letters to write. And, but people have a, a large capacity to, to fight the power, you know, power of the people. Daniel, do you feel like as you set about to make music that is also connected to an environmental protection cause, did you have sort of a mentor that you were looking to, someone who showed you the path, this is how I can use my art for good, or do you feel like you were sort of inventing that process for yourself? Uh, I had definitely um, people who set a great example for that kind of uh, writing, but no one that I knew personally. You know what I mean? Like. Um, I admired Jean Ritchie long before I ever met her, and that was, I still, I mean, she's still a guiding light for me um, as a human being, not only as, a, as an artist, but, but yeah, of course, uh, Woody Guthrie and um, Johnny Cash, even Dolly Parton, I mean, even, um, who you don't really think of as being like a political writer, but she's tough. Though. Oh man, she's so tough, so brilliant, and I think they're and you know outside of music as well. Um, I was raised uh, in in a, a household that really cared about the world and cared about people, and um, your and parents are here. Today. My parents are here. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and it's, you know, I think I've, I look to them and I'm thankful to them for instilling values in me to, you know, that still, you know, guide my work, probably in ways that I don't even understand, you know, but um, I don't know. I think 
kind of like what Guy said about his photographs. Um, it's like you're going to work um, on whatever is is inspiring you, and and things will push you. Like when Guy was making pictures 40 years ago, um, in the place in all the places that are being threatened by development and highways and everything. He wasn't thinking, well, in 40 years, I'm going to use these to protest. No. He was meditating on the space and, and being a part of it and reacting to it. That's what I was doing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and skinny dipping, apparently. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, but I, I feel like it, you're going to write, if even whatever, you, whether you're a writer or not, or a musician or not, you're going to be writing about, thinking about, talking with your friends about whatever is capturing your imagination or driving you absolutely crazy, whatever the case is. And so it's kind of like, an, I guess it's difficult to exactly pinpoint a precise influence, but um, it, you just sort of feel lucky to be able to do it and to be able to focus on on that as, you know, in a way that um, might not necessarily be reasonable from an economic perspective or from a cultural, like cultural norm perspective. You know yeah. what I mean? I don't know if that makes sense or not. I think that we have some time to take questions from our audience. Um, I guess a question probably for, for Guy, just because he has more experience, but Daniel, feel free to, to chime in. Um, you know, you talk about, uh, you know, working for 40 years on these environmental issues and, you know, these kind of things you have to constantly beat back every five, ten years, the same issue comes up. How do you, how do you, you know, how do you stick with it? How do you keep from getting discouraged? How do you keep from throwing up your hands and saying, you know what, I just can't do it anymore? It's hard sometimes. I mean, we've just seen, you know, you know, you got to get up, put your feet on the floor the next day, and keep after it. Um, it's, it can be difficult, and it can take a long time, and you think it may never work out, that you, know, you can put, stop things that are uh, degrading the, the world we live in. And, uh, um, you know, but obviously, it's, it's something you have to do all of your life long, because uh, there's, there are always going to be people who want to uh, capitalize, you know, who see land as uh, something they can make money on, as opposed to a God-given thing that we all should take care of and leave in better shape for the next generations. And uh, that keeps me going. What about you? Yeah, same thing. You can't... Uh People like Mitch McConnell never retire, so we can't either. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Senator, no. It's like, yeah. It's it's. I mean, it's love. It's like you don't stop loving someone because you're going through a difficult situation, and you don't stop loving the world just because other people are maybe trying to blow it up or just not thinking about it the way that you are or 
or whatever. It's like you have you're devoted to it because what else do you what else do you do? You know, I mean, what what's the alternative? There is no alternative, really. Yeah. In recent years, there have been more um, a church-affiliated green movement that I've read about. Uh, you know, I, uh, which is fine. You know, I think um, I think it's a very powerful religious kind of thing to uh, protect the earth and um, keep it from destruction because those forces are out there and there are you know newer bigger machines to tear it up and if they can't tear up our eastern Kentucky for coal they'll tear up Wyoming for coal even though the prices are going down uh, and it also helps slow the rise of alternative fuels and um, solar and wind and hydro and um, all the other alternative sources of energy. Um, um, every year there's a march on Frankfurt in the springtime, uh, a Save uh, I Heart Mountains Day, it's called, and we all go out and tromp across the bridge and head to the Capitol and you know have a big rally. and. A few years back, the actress Ashley Judd came, and she gave a great speech about how Eastern Kentucky could be the green capital of the United States. It could be uh, a place where innovation is uh, nurtured and startups, you know, and, and various kinds of alternative energies and so forth. And I just thought, wow, this woman should be elected to public office, you know. And I think she toyed with the idea, and then. Yeah. Uh, decided not to run, but uh, it's probably best for her not to, but uh, we could have used a, a voice like that, you know, somebody that people look up to and you don't, you know, expect things like that to come out of her mouth about the, the terrors that have been visited upon the people of Eastern Kentucky by these giant corporations who take the money and run. Mm. I don't we think she's another. out of the game completely. Well, that's good. I mean, I would say She's very smart. Yeah, I would hang on for Ashley Judd. I wouldn't be surprised if in in the coming years she didn't. She could be the first woman president. Please. My question is also for Guy. Um, please don't misconstrue my question. Um, I'm in awe of this photograph, especially on this scale. But maybe you could educate me. Um, <laughs> why, as an artist and a photographer, you would choose black and white over color? Well, early on, it, it, it was what there was. Uh, color was still fairly new when I was coming up in the 60s, and uh, though it had been around for a while. And, uh, but uh, what you could process yourself more easily was black and white. And um, I, uh, over the years, I've made color transparencies and now di digital color, but I still make four by five black and white and uh, two and a quarter inch black and white film and 35 black and white film because I love the quality that it gives. I love the richness of the silver image. And um, there's also a, a, a matter of uh, longevity. Uh, silver prints, the old style black and white prints, when they're archivally processed, they are said to be able to last thousands of years if they're kept in some place other than Kentucky with a lot of humidity, humidity and whatnot. But, uh, uh, so there's an archival life value. Uh, there's the beauty of it. 
Um, you know, the black and white not only, uh, it's a kind of abstraction. I mean, the world is not black and white. The world is not like this big. Uh, the world's not this big. So you're making things smaller. Uh, I think graphically, black and white images uh, uh, are sometimes a lot stronger. I, you know, I love color work. I, the color, color is great. I, uh, I'm not dissing it or anything like that. But uh, so it, it was what I could do in my bathroom in my little dark room. Uh, color processing was a lot more complicated. I did some Cibachrome for a while where you made a print uh, through colored gels, uh, filters, and then you put it in a tank and waited 10 minutes. <laughs> and then you open the tank and uh, uh, it was crappy and you had to go back and start all over again. So it was a very laborious pro uh, uh, process, whereas black and white, you know, you can develop your film, you proof it, and then you start work making work prints. And uh, so that's how I came up. And, but a friend of mine that I went to school with, Sam Abel, went, went on to work for National Geographic and made the most wonderful color pictures, uh, some of the most wonderful in, in the world. And I've admired those a lot. And every now and then I make a, a color picture that I really like. But Occasionally in digital, I'll make it in color and then I'll switch it to black and white and go, I like it better in black and white. Uh, it's stronger graphically. It has a little more oomph to it. And uh, so now I'm kind of confusing myself. And I'll go out and I'll shoot, like on Marble Creek, I'll set up little games for myself. I'll shoot with the four by five, you know, you get under and you make like two, two exposures in over a half hour's time. And, and then I'll shoot it in the, with the digital camera and go back to the the, uh, the real dark room and then the, the digital dark room and the computer and come up with the prints and compare them. And, uh, on one picture from Marble Creek of some sycamore leaves with the light coming through them, um, I thought the 4 by 5 black and white would be the best. Uh, but because it's a slower film, like, you know, ASA 50 or 100, and you're under dappled light, you've got to expose for, you know, one ansel atoms, two ansel atoms, three ansel atoms, three seconds or so. So the leaves start blurring. And sometimes I like the blur. Some, but in this one image I'm referring to, I, I looked at the color digital image, which had the beautiful light coming through the leaves, and the leaves were still. And then I converted it to black and white, and it got better. And I was like, well, I'm going to take this one. So I'm not, a, you know, I'm not a purist. Uh, I'll, work my way. I, I, I like the end result, and if it, I'm not uh, as picky as I used to be about how I get there. And I do uh, want to jump in and say that if you haven't been upstairs to see Guy's photographs as part of the exhibition, they are stunning in person, and this sort of projected image does not do the real thing justice. Well, you're very sweet. Thank you. Yeah. You're very kind. So that's why. Uh, what's, what's, it's what makes my boogie ooze. It's what, you know, it, it, what gets me excited when I see something rich. And, and it comes from having, when I first realized photography could be more than photography, <laughs> and I, was, I lived a year in Connecticut with James Baker Hall. I was his apprentice. Uh, and we went to New York a lot, and I could go to the Museum of Modern Art and the Light Gallery and the Whitkin Gallery. And to see prints by Edward Weston and Paul Caponegro and uh, Imogene Cunningham and um, you know, wow, uh, when you see really rich black and white prints, it just made me want to produce prints like that. Yeah. So. And you're good at it, too. 
It's like, do you like acoustic or electric? We're going to make yes. this our last question because I just heard that they're uh, going to close the front door. So uh, from Dang. security because the museum is closing. We're so <laughs> trapped for the night. Because <laughs> it's eight. So night at uh, the museum. Well, yeah, yeah. You, you can go out this door, but uh, just to let you know <laughs> the front doors will be closing. So this will be our last question from the audience. A good question. Well, we got involved with the folks in Eastern Kentucky in Daniel's younger years, and we started yes. going to a place. This is my stepdad, Joseph Boone, everyone. Okay, yeah. And, and so we started going to a little town called Fleming Neon, which is in Letcher, Letcher County, County, and Lynch, which were two mining towns there. And uh, just the question is to ask you about the people of those towns, because uh, here's what happened in Fleming Neon. They closed the city school in Fleming Neon, and they took a reclaimed uh, mountaintop removal site, and they put the high school on the very top level, and they put the middle school on the second level of the, all this reclaimed painted area. And it was as if they said to the people of Letcher County, now don't ever forget, we own you. And uh, we're going to be in your face all the time because what we have done in ravaging your land, every student, they merged all the schools, every student has to come through and go to high school on this land where we have ravaged it. And every student that goes through has to see that. So my thought is for you, both of you, this has impacted the people in a big way. And for Daniel, of course, uh, we have kind of a, the LNN doesn't stop here anymore. The, uh, the song, Jane Ritchie song that's uh, Ritchie, yeah, yeah. Well, it's a great song that talks about what happens to the people so talk about the people well I think you know building a, a school on an, uh, uh, an abandoned basically strip mine um, yeah reclaimed is a very generous way to describe that land yeah Harry Collow once told me and I, I was working on a I used to do some uh, stringing or correspondent work for Newsweek and I, they sent me for two weeks through the coal fields in 1971 and I asked Harry Cuddle about reclamation, and he said, reclamation isn't worth a cup full of coal spit. And I was like, oh, I'll write that down. Um, so, but to put a high school and another school there, it's, it's kind of adding insult to injury. Uh, it's an extension of the, is hegemony the right word? I mean, the coal companies used to own the town. They owned the company store. They paid the people in script, which, you know, Bethlehem Coal. And, you know, it wasn't real money. And... Um, they totally control the lives of these little towns like Fleming Neon, uh, uh, Wheelwright. Uh, they were coal company towns, lock, owned lock, stock, and barrel, you know, by companies in Pittsburgh and Houston, uh, New York City, and uh, who really only cared about the profit that they extracted. And it went back to the early 1900s when uh, this guy John C.C. Mayo and his wife rode through the mountains and. She had a long dress with pockets in, in, the, in the skirt with, where she kept gold coins. Uh, and they would find a mountain family and uh, say, we, you know, we'll give you this gold coin for the mineral rights to your 50 or 100 acres here. And it was really pennies an acre. And, uh, and it also gave them the right to tear the surface up to get to the minerals. And uh, so I, I think there's still that kind of do um, control of the region by the energy companies, even though it's waning because the industry is in decline. Uh, and a lot of people have left, uh, yeah. younger people especially. Uh, 
back when there were slumps in the coal industry, people went to Dayton and Michigan to get jobs. Uh, you know, by night I worked the cars. By by day I worked the cars. By night I worked the bars. What was that? Bobby Bear, uh, Detroit City. Um, so uh, I think you know the disaster for the public in mountainous areas continues in terms of uh, health problems, poor education, lack of money for retraining, uh, for making it that you know uh, uh, into a new commerce kind of you know place where miners can learn to code, <laughs> and it's happening in pockets, you know, but it's going to take more infrastructure and more, dare I say, uh, government support. But uh, there is this giant pool of money that can be drawn yeah. on if only some of the senators would agree to do that. And I don't understand why they haven't. Because the money was put into a pool for just th this kind of reason, to help with reclamation, to help with uh, post-coal economy. I'll just have one little nugget if we have time. Nugget. But that is to say that um, nine of the poorest 15 counties in the United States of America are in eastern Kentucky. And Which that is, is a couple hours that way. Yeah. If yeah, I mean it's not far. Um, and that's shocking when you think about the billions and billions and billions of dollars worth of material that has been taken out from the ground in those same counties. Um, the word rape. Yeah. Comes, the rape theft. of the environment comes to my theft. Absolutely. Yeah. Like, it, it's, it's alarming that, um, that the people who live in such wealth are, are surrounded by it you know, things that our modern world values so highly would be so poor and that we as a, as a commonwealth in Kentucky wouldn't be standing up for the citizens. Um, that I think is, is one of the most shocking things about it. So yeah, the people are getting screwed. There's no, no other way to look at it. Um, their land is being destroyed and their health is being destroyed. And the severance taxes are minuscule and often um, unreachable for the communities. So There's a man running for governor of West Virginia, Justice, is that his name? Um, mm. odd, oddly named, who owes millions in back fines in Kentucky. Uh, Four million, something like that, yeah. and hasn't paid. And he wants to be the governor of West Virginia. And it's like, wait. Well, thank you both for the work that you have been doing, and thank you, Guy and Daniel, for joining us this evening and for talking with us. Thank you, Daniel. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Art Palace. We hope you'll be inspired to come visit the Cincinnati Art Museum and have conversations about the art yourself. General admission to the museum is always free, and we also offer free parking. Special exhibitions on view right now are Van Gogh, Into the Undergrowth, 
Kentucky Renaissance, the Lexington Camera Club, and its community, 1954 through 1974. The Book of Only Enoch and the Jackleg Testament, Part 1, Jack and Eve. Employed, a staff art exhibition. A program that might interest you is Muse on Sunday, December 11th at 2 p.m. Muse is a live concert inspired by art that is presented by students from the College Conservatory of Music with a gallery discussion presented by a university art history student. For program reservations and more information, visit cincinnatiartmuseum.org. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Snapchat. Our theme song is Offrande Musicale by Bacalao. Hey, are you listening on an iPhone? Why not subscribe to our podcast on iTunes? And while you're at it, leave us a nice review too. I'm Russell Eyrig, and this has been Art Palace, produced by the Cincinnati Art Museum. Music